Hello everyone and welcome to the Stephen King Cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week I'll review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication. And this week I won't be reviewing one of Stephen King's published works, but one of his televised ones. In 1999, ABC Television released an original King miniseries about a supernatural snowstorm that hits a small main island town. A deadly snowstorm sent to mask an even deadlier threat the villainous Andre Linoge, the antagonist of Storm of the Century. Now, King did release this as a published teleplay, but please note that I will not be reviewing the publication. Instead, I'm going to focus exclusively on the television event itself. As for this miniseries, uh, when I sat down to review it again, having not seen it in a couple of years, all I remembered was that I had nothing but good memories. Now, when it first came out, I had been a Stephen King fan for about five or six years, and though my peak fandom was behind me, the idea of an original King story written specifically for TV sounded good to me. And plus, it looked good, too. And most importantly, it was the second Stephen King TV miniseries to feature a Hackett brother, this time Joe Hackett, having followed in his brother Brian's footsteps after the adaptation of The Shining. Joe Hackett, of course, is the co-owner of Sandpiper Air, along with his brother Brian Hackett, the brothers from the television show Wings. The characters portrayed by Steven Weber, who played Jack Torrance in the previous television event, The Shining, and Tim Daly, who stars in Storm of the Century. So before I get any further uh, and get into my review, I'm going to read a listener email. So as you guys know, this is something that I just, I love sharing everyone's thoughts. It's one of the reasons why I wanted to start the Stephen King cast was because I wanted people to have an opportunity to voice their their thoughts, their opinions on Stephen King and what Stephen King means to them. So Spencer writes, Hello, I've been meaning to write to you since I first began listening to your show, but haven't had the opportunity. For the past few years, I've been listening to different podcasts based around Stephen King, but only a few months ago did I discover yours. Believe me, it was a huge treat. For whatever reason, every time I searched on Google or iTunes, yours never came up. But the one time it did, I got excited, especially seeing you were nearly 20 episodes in at the time. I had a good bit of catching up to do. The reason your podcast is important to me is that I have a wonderful relationship with past Stephen King podcasts, and here's why. I first read Stephen King when I was 12. He was my first adult-based author and soon became a lifelong literary companion. My first read was the Green Mile serialization, and from there I read everything I could. Problem was that when I got into my English college courses, King was derided as an amateur and unfit to be studied. Not once was his name or work brought up in any of my literature or writing courses, and genre work of his type was dispelled as useless. I can honestly say that by my junior year of college, my professors broke me of my love of King. From there... I even badmouthed him for a few years. I think Cell was the last new release I bought, and the first I put down. It wouldn't be until Under the Dome's release years later that I reevaluated what he was doing and who I was and what I enjoyed as a reader, an identity that is pretty important to my overall life. Anyways, four or so years ago, I was back to reading new Stephen King works as they came out, but not all the way committed to reading everything. The show Lost had ended, and I was hungry for something huge and in-depth that would envelop me the same way that that show had. Can you imagine how wonderful Lost would have been as a novel instead of a show? This is what made me think of The Dark Tower, and what prompted me to go down my third rereading of the series, and by far my most adult and in-depth. I loved every second of it. And it was around then that I first thought of going back through every one of King's works a second time through, this time as an adult. This became difficult, though, but lovely all the same. My wife and I found we were going to have a baby. I knew that my time as a constant, constant reader would be coming to a near halt. The day my daughter was born, my wife came to surprise me at work with a box of Stephen King books she'd bought at a garage sale. Not long after, we went to the hospital for a routine checkup and my wife went into labor. Hours later, our daughter Bria was born. After my wife's maternity leave was over, I was alone with my daughter for the first time. 
She was the most restless of babies. I would spend hours trying to comfort and soothe her, literally walking miles just to keep her happy and calm. When I finally found a rhythm, my new commitment to rereading Stephen King commenced and became firmly tied in with a lifelong memory of the first years of my daughter. As I comforted my daughter, I would listen to different podcasts such as Lilia's Library to keep me sane. Then while my daughter slept, I began rereading Needful Things. I will never forget those moments of reading King and thinking on King and then having my baby wake up, stare up at me, and know that I was her father and seeing that I loved her with all of my heart. These would become memories forever entrenched within my thoughts. Just last week, you reviewed Needful Things, and your enthusiasm for the book was something that touched me. I'm sure you never thought you'd hear this, but as you reviewed the book, I got a little joyfully teary-eyed as you did such a wonderful job capturing a reading experience forever blended with some of my best days on earth as a human being and as a father. I just wanted to say thank you, that I appreciate all of your diligent work, and that you've got a long-time listener over here in southwestern Pennsylvania, merely miles from the settings of both Christine and from a Buick 8. Thank you again, Spencer. Spencer, man, that is an incredible, an incredible email. Um, very, very personal. And thank you so much for writing in. Um, it's just everything that you were saying uh, in that email. It just, you know, I mean... It was written by Spencer, but uh, it could very easily have been written by me. I, uh, I, I very much feel the same way. Um, you know, I mean, like you, as, as you probably know, you know, I first started reading King when I was uh, younger. And, you know, when I wound up going to college, I was an English major. Yeah, I mean, I think that many of us who followed that particular path get brainwashed, get brainwashed, I don't want to say by the elite, but as we study the, the classic um, authors of the canon, certain styles are frowned upon, and certainly that would be the the pop culture uh, styles that uh, Stephen King is the, the, the master of. So I was just talking to someone else about this, and, and same thing, he was an English major, he loved Stephen King before he went to college, he went to college, he got brainwashed during that time when he was in college, he was just pro-literature with a capital L, he leaves college, he kind of reevaluates everything and says, wait a minute, what was I thinking? I love Stephen King. I've always loved Stephen King. So I, I think that your experiences, Spencer, are, are definitely uh, experiences that I know that I can relate to. And I think that many listeners out there can relate to. But seriously, though, your your story of of, of Bria is is really touching. That is that's an incredible story um, that I just I, I'm just very, very appreciative for for you being able to share that because that's that is a that is all about the power of of the reading experience, isn't it? Where the experience of reading something that was given to you from someone else, someone that you'll you'll never meet, you'll never know, Stephen King, right? He gives you something. He gives you not just words on paper, not just a story, but he's transferring concepts to you through the page that forevermore become intertwined with your own life and your own experiences. These imaginary events that are being transmitted from his imagination into your imagination through the vehicle of this book, just interweaving with the emotional um, currents that, that you currently were going through being a recent father that's 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 really what it's all about incredible incredible email thank you so much um and if anyone else has any story that they want to share feel free to write into stephen kingcast at yahoo.com and if you haven't done so already head on over to itunes now spencer had written that he had difficulty finding me and part of it is because of how subscriptions and how reviews work on iTunes. Even though the name of the podcast is Stephen Kingcast, and if you type in Stephen Kingcast, it might not necessarily come up as the first podcast that you see because of 
the just how the ratings work. Um, so if you have a spare time, if you like listening to the Stephen King cast once a week, I don't ask for any money. Um, but if you do have a, a couple minutes, just shoot on over to iTunes, um, leave a review, write a review. I love um, uh, reviews one one way or another. If it's good, that's great. Um, if it's bad, that's fine. I had one email over the summer that I think really improved the quality of these episodes because he said, listen, I love listening to Stephen King cast, but seriously, uh, you say, um, way too much and it's driving me nuts. So ever since that point, I have been very, very diligent when I'm recording these to really omit the ums and the uhs. I mean, it'll slip in here and there, but when I went back and I, I listened to some of the previous episodes that I had recorded for a stretch of time, I saw that I was just inserting way, 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 way too many ums and ahs in between sentences because I just, I guess I was just afraid of, of, of dead airspace. So, uh, critical feedback is always appreciative. Positive feedback is always great. So feel free to head on over to iTunes to write a review and then leave me some feedback because, it's definitely something that I'm going to uh, take into account. And then there was the, the time when someone wrote about giving the Easter egg section. So I split off the, the Easter eggs from the, the Stephen Kingisms. So I definitely take what, what, you, what you have to um, suggest in order for me to, to improve the, the podcast that, it's, that you are listening to once a week. All right, everyone. So what I'm going to do now, I'm going to read the Wikipedia summary so I can get into my analysis of 1999's The Storm of the Century from Wikipedia. A very powerful blizzard hits the fictional small town of Little Tall Island off the coast of Maine. The storm is so powerful that across all of the island, sorry, that across, that all across, and try and read, okay, guys, the storm is so powerful that all access off the island is blocked. <laughs> okay, the storm is so powerful that all access off the island is blocked and no one is able to leave that island until the storm is over. While trying to deal with the storm, tragedy strikes when one of the town's residents is brutally murdered by Andre Linoge, a menacing stranger who appears to know the town's members' darkest secrets and who gives no hint of his motives other than the cryptic statement, give me what I want and I'll go away. Linoge is imprisoned in the town's holding cell by part-time constable Michael Anderson, but it becomes clear that his ability to affect the town is not inhibited as he sows supernatural terror in the town's populace through the strange suicides and terrifying dreams. After escaping from the cell, Linoge's campaign of terror culminates in an enchantment that places all eight of the town's small children into unconsciousness. He eventually calls a town meeting, and it is here that Linoge reveals the reason why he has come to their town. What Linoge desires is an heir, one of eight children he has enchanted. He reveals his true form, an impossibly ancient dying man, explaining that he is not immortal and needs someone to carry on his work once he can no longer do it himself. He states that in matters such as this, he cannot simply take the child he desires, but he can punish. If the residents accept his request, he will leave them in peace, promising that the child he takes will have a long life with much to see. If they refuse, he threatens to force them to march into the sea, two by two, as he claims to have done at Roanoke Island, North Carolina, centuries before. With his demands set, he leaves them with half an hour to make their decision. Although Michael Anderson begs the town to refuse Lenoge's request, appealing to their common decency and the fact that they may be aiding in a great evil, his arguments fall on deaf ears. All of the townspeople accept him vote to give Lenoge what he desires. Lenoge is deeply pleased at this choice and has each parent draw one of eight weirding stones from a sack, seven white stones and one black stone. The parent who draws the single black stone is the one whose child will be taken. It ultimately comes down to Molly Anderson and Melinda Hatcher. When they both open their hands, Molly is revealed to have the black stone. Ralph Anderson, her son, and the child hinted to be favored by Linoge throughout the series is thus chosen. Even though Mike has refused to vote and therefore have his son withdrawn from this request Molly had against her husband's wishes and therefore included Ralph in. 
Molly believes that choosing was fixed. They claim Linoge brushes off, saying the game was straight, but says it in such a way as to raise doubt. Contemptuously thanking the town, Linoge transforms into his true form and suggests that the less they say to the outside world about the events with him, the happier they will be. But of course, such matters are ultimately up to you. With a final remark to Molly that Ralph will eventually come to call him father, Linoge flies off into the night with his new protege. Most of the film's epilogue is narrated by Mike Anderson as he explains how he leaves Little Tall the following summer. Unable to live with those who sacrificed his child, Mike divorces Molly and severs contact with the people he once called his friends. He eventually settles in San Francisco, attempting to move on from the storm. He goes back to school, earning a degree in law enforcement and another degree in accountancy, ultimately ending up as a federal marshal. Molly ends up marrying Elton Hatcher, Hatcher after his wife Melinda suddenly dies after a long period of depression. Other little townsfolk are not so lucky, with several committing suicide over the ensuing years. However, Linoge is not finished with Mike. Nine years after the storm, Mike is seen dropping takeout into the ground as he is startled by the sound of something familiar. When an old man and a teenage boy walk by, humming Linoge's favorite tune, I'm a Little Teapot, he calls out to the boy, and they turn around. The boy looks strangely similar to Mike, and he realizes it's his son, now corrupted by Linoge. He chases after them into an alley, but they are gone. Mike considers telling Molly about what he saw, but ultimately decides against it. His final thoughts are that sometimes he thinks that was the wrong decision, but in daylight, I know better. So analysis. The movie begins with the colors of blue, black, and white. The snow-swept streets of a small town at night, and it's as easy as that to establish the setting. The camera swoops in to give us shots of the snow-covered houses, snow-draped cars. Everything is covered in snow and completely still. We then hear Tim Daly introducing us to his character, Mike Anderson, who gives us the moral of the story up front, the very folksy Stephen King lesson of you pay as you go, and mentions the events of the story that will unfold over the next four hours as what the folks call the storm of the century, a snowstorm that had occurred nine years before while the overhead camera pans over the snow-filled streets before heading out over the water then over a ferry that Dolores and Selina Claiborne know all too well, before introducing us to Little Tall Island. We're getting the visual introduction to the setting while Tim Daly provides us for the audio introduction in which he describes life on the island, so small and tiny that it's too Maine for Maine itself. We meet fishermen getting ready for the storm while Tim Daly discusses secrets and how the island keeps its secrets, which is a great indirect callback to the last story to take place on Little Tall Island, Dolores Claiborne, but doesn't have to reference it if you're not looking for it. The town is bustling as everyone is preparing to weather the incoming storm, with some characters feeling that the storm is getting blown out of proportion while others worried it might be as bad as the weathermen are saying because, as one character puts it, because of the island's remoteness, if we get in trouble, we're in trouble. This blend of over-preparation with lack of concern is something that strikes every New Englander every time the Doppler shows incoming snow. With local weather loving to be as dramatic as possible, every storm at this point is now built up to the, the level of Stephen King's The Storm of the Century. So it's a crapshoot what you're going to get when the snow starts to fall. In the case of the winter of 2015, it was a pretty intense winter. I mean, just ask the folks in Buffalo. You know, they don't have to watch The Storm of the Century to tell you that it's authentic. They lived through it. So far, the establishing shots, very effective. We're getting a sense of the town. You know, the houses are framed against the indifferent gray waters of the Atlantic Ocean. Just the, you don't need much here to just really capture what life is like. It's isolated and it can be raw. It can be harsh. And then we get the back-to-back -back visual of an elderly lady drinking tea with a yellow workman's glove clutching a silver cane handle in the shape of a wolf's head. Here we go, everyone. It's our introduction to our latest Stephen King villain, Andre Linoge, who makes an incredible debut. 
the camera slows down as we get an underhand shot of us looking up at Linoge as he stands under the elderly woman's gate, preparing to knock the first pawn off of his chessboard. Though we know nothing of him at this point, even before the murder, we get a deep unease from him. First, let's just look at what he's wearing. The pea coat, the winter hat, the jeans, and the work boots are all clothing items that go together, completely in line with life on the island. That doesn't make him stand out. But the yellow workman's glove is a nice touch. It's a visual pop that, to me, really makes him stand out. And then there's the cane. King knows, he knows this, that he's got an ace in the hole with this cane. And every time he can show it off, he does. Because he knows it's such a weird touch. And this accessory makes our mysterious character that much more mysterious. When our helpless first victim opens the door, he's draped in shadow, full of menace and catchphrases, basically screaming, I'm a Stephen King villain, guys! Remember, here's Johnny! We all float! Rub-a-dub-dub, thanks for the grub! They're all gonna laugh at you! Sometimes dead is better! Hey, I got a catchphrase too! Born in sin? Come on in! Born in lust? Turn to dust! You like that? Huh, guys? You like that? That's pretty cool, right? It's okay if you don't. I've got more! Everybody, meet Andre Linoge, the Stephen King villain that tries way too hard. So what we're going to do now, we are going to play our Storm of the Century drinking game. Take a drink every time Linoge gives us a cute catchphrase. He throws the walker, and when we next see him, he's let himself into the house singing, I'm a little teapot, his yellow gloves and wolf's head handle covered in blood. Now, I'm going to consider I'm a little teapot at, as an attempt at a catchphrase. So, by the rules of our game, take a drink. Now, I got to say that I feel in this day and age that I need to be clear that I'm only joking. And that's my disclaimer. And I have to say this because if you are going to take a drink every time I tell you to, every listener is going to die of alcohol poisoning in about five minutes. Just wait. In Mike's store, we get to know our characters and the nice interactions between them. It's established right away that Mike is the rock of this town. And back at his wife, uh, Molly's place, uh, Molly's We Folks Daycare, we meet a bunch of precocious little children that are just insufferable right off the bat. Mike's sidekick, Hatch, is the worried father of Pippa, the child whose head is unbelievably... And I don't mean this like, oh, that's unbelievable. I mean, no, this is this is not possible. The head is unbelievably stuck between the staircase. And at no point does this look like a credible scene. And what's even worse here is that Molly needs her husband to come help her with this. So anyway, back in the house, Linoge grips his cane, and the camera lingers in on his oil-black eyes, demonstrating his otherworldliness. Uh, Davy, the neighborhood teen, sees the walker on the street and enters, seeing the body of Mrs. Clarendon, and he is mocked by the taunting Linoge, who knows Davy's name. Davy drops the ball. Linoge commands it to come to him. He grabs it, throws it at the screen, and mutters, He shoots, he scores. Everybody, take a drink. Davy tells the townsfolk about Mrs. Clarendon, and we meet Jeffrey DeMunn, playing town manager Robbie Beals, who's a Mr. Know-it-all. Immediately, we see how he functions in contrast to Mike Anderson. People have already headed towards Mike for help, first with the townsfolk uh, looking for meat at the deli, and then his wife, Molly, needing help for whatever reason with Pippa, uh, whose head is not stuck between the, the banisters. You know, he's the classic hero um, being called to action. And then, contrastly, we have Robbie, who just inserts himself into the action, not because he's heroic, but because he wants to remind everyone that he's the boss of this island. He enters the home of Mrs. Clarendon, and when he encounters Andre Linoge, asking him who he is, he's met with Linoge saying, Born in sin? Come on in. Everybody, take a drink. Linoge turns his wolf cane to look at Robbie, 
uh, and without looking at him, starts to narrate the awful events of Robbie's mother's death. It's gruesome, and Calm Fiore is deeply menacing as he recounts it beat by beat before launching into the image of her in hell, reduced to cannibalism. It's a great moment, building up to our next catchphrase, that's what hell is. Hell is repetition. Everybody, take a drink. Robbie, rightfully terrified, runs from the house and in a panic, calls in the murder over the walkie. He's terrified as he recounts what occurred over the walkie, and on the other end, the store goers listen to every word. Unsurprisingly, this is when the snow starts to come down. Anderson starts to load his gun, and he and Hatch, 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 Hatch head, head into the house to confront Lenoge. On the television, the weather person reminds the viewer about the horrible weather conditions that are coming in. As Mike and Hatch arrest Lenoge, it's clear who's in charge. As Lenoge, as Lenoge points out that Hatch still has the safety on, and if he blows the shotgun, he'll get them both. He's calm as he's led outside, and when asked, you know, he tells us that his name is Andre Lenoge. We have a nice moment between Katrina and Molly as Katrina informs Molly of what's occurred. You know, it's a necessary moment to show how one death affects so many people and how personal it is. As Lenoge is placed into a makeshift paddy wagon, he turns to Robbie and says, Hell is repetition. Everybody, you know what to do, take a drink. Robbie and Mike argue, argue over who's in charge. Robbie reminding us once again that he's in charge because, after all, he is the town manager. Back in the paddy wagon, Linoge makes a scary, evil face for no reason. Um, and I am going to change the rules of the drinking game. Uh, we are going to drink every time Linoge just tries too hard. Not necessarily because he's trying to come up with a catchphrase, just because simply that he's trying too hard. So the fact that he's in the back of a paddy wagon without anybody else to see him and he's making scary faces, that to me is trying too hard. So um, everybody take a drink for the oogie boogie scary face. The boys try to bring in Linoge um, into the lockup, but Linoge, through his magic powers, makes the key snap off in the lock. Hatch goes to fix the situation, leaving Mike alone with the killer. Then Linoge gives us the tagline of the series. Give me what I want, and I'll go away. It's also the most famous of Linoge's catchphrase, but a catchphrase nevertheless, so go ahead and take a drink. On the other side of the door, Hatch can't get it open. Again, this is Lenoge manipulating the situation. And because they can't get through the back, they have to go in through the front, which means that he'll have to be paraded through the town that has built up through the store. It's a perfect opportunity for Lenoge to continue to demonstrate his control of the situation despite the fact that he is currently in handcuffs. Inside, he surveys the residents gathered in the store and pauses to stop in front of a select few of them, mocking them in front of everyone, spitting their secrets out for the rest of the world to hear. And as he continues down the aisle, Molly, campaigning for the Worst Mother of the Year award, allows her son to wander around the very same store through which they are leading the killer, and Ralph is quickly snatched up by Linoge. It's forced because it's just too coincidental and just too just dumb. Uh, and it happens simply because plot demands it, but it's a terrifying moment nevertheless because we simply don't know what Linoge's motivation is. And we know how terrifying and dangerous he can be. Linoge continues to control the situation, showing again that he knows things that he shouldn't referring to the, the birthmark on Ralphie's nose, knowing Mike's nickname for it, and establishes that he's good with kids. Speaking of control, Mike screams at him to put him down, and Lenoge very nonchalantly says, or what? He then puts him down and lets him go back to his parents. Inside the cells, Mike flips out on Lenoge after he can't find the man's wallet. No wallet means no proof that he's a real person, which he really isn't, and Mike has that suspicion even though it can't be possible. Robbie Beals comes in specifically to push Mike's buttons while Nose watches the scene transpire. Mike has to talk to Molly, leaving Hatch alone with Lenoge. 
Mike heads back into the store and effectively deputizes a handful of men to help out. While in the cell, Linoge whispers a spell that causes the power on the island to go out, and once draped in darkness, we see his eyes glowing red. In the cell, Linoge remains unfazed of the darkness, not moving, not having to do anything to make Pete and Hatch start to irritate each other. From the cell, Linoge's eyes follow Pete, whose marijuana operation he'd blown up in front of everyone, and then to remind us that he's evil with a capital E, he shows his monster fangs again. Take a drink. In the house of Mrs. Clarendon, Mike finds the words, Give me what I want and I'll go away, scrawled on the wall. He then snaps a picture of uh, Linoge's cane leaning on the couch. As soon as he takes a picture, it's gone. Back in the jail, Pete is in a trance, scrawling on a piece of paper under Linoge's spell. In the jail, the cane arrives. The presence of the cane, alone with Linoge's spellcasting, is whipping the storm into a frenzy and causing the other townsfolk to fall under his spell. One resident paints, give me what I want and I'll go away, on a town truck before axing himself in the face, while Pete hangs himself with the very same message stuck to his chest. It's a great moment, very effective, and shows just how dangerous this monster is. But then he has to go and ruin it when he makes that scary face for no reason whatsoever. So everybody, he's trying too hard. <laughs> Take a drink. With the destruction of the docks, Ursula blows the whistle to bring the entire town to the shelter. The director makes sure to remind us of the children, the worst of which is Donnie Beals, Robbie's son, who takes after the old man. As Mike and Hatch react to Pete's death, Lloyd's friend comes bursting into the shelter, screaming about the axe to the face. Chaos begins to spread throughout the inhabitants of the island as the storm crashes down upon it. Back in the jail cell, Linoge spills Mike's worst secret that Mike once cheated on a midterm exam in college. The fact that this scene plays out so seriously is what makes it unintentionally hilarious. Linoge treats the information with the same weight as the marijuana operation and the resident who assaulted the gay man earlier this year. Um, and the fact that it's just, you once cheated on a midterm exam. You know, and he's like really like playing it up and he's he's so overdramatic about it. It's, it's pretty funny. We then have an extended sequence where Linoge attempts to force Billy into killing Katrina. But here we see that Linoge, though powerful, he may be. He's not all-powerful, and he's unable to make Billy do it. It's the first time we see Linoge rattled as he lashes out at Mike and quickly begins to work on Katrina, having her grab the cane. Once she grips the source of his power, she's completely under his spell and beats Billy to death with the cane while Linoge singing, I'm a little teapot. So everybody, take a drink. Ursula then steps up as our latest Stephen King psychic. She has a feeling that something bad has happened to Peter. She tells Molly that she's going to head over to the jail and needs Molly to watch over everyone while she's gone. As Ursula heads to the jail, Mike acknowledges the truth about Linoge and admits that he doesn't think he's human. Surrounded by the townsfolk, this acknowledgement makes Linoge that much more chilling as he sits in his cell like a hungry, intelligent predator. Ursula reacts to the death of her husband, Pete, and then in the jail cell, listens to Linoge sing, I'm a little teapot again. Drink. Linoge forces the old woman that's been razzing everyone to drown herself in the sink, but not before squalling, give me what I want and I'll go away, on the mirrors. In the jail, Linoge makes Robbie think that his mother is imprisoned. As his mother cries out for her Robbie, Robbie grabs the gun. The other guys in the jail cell try to get Robbie before he does something stupid, and the Linoge mother tells Robbie that once he gets to hell, she's going to eat his eyes over and over because hell is repetition. Take a drink. She then says, born in sin, come on in. So take another drink. And then he makes a scary face. Take a drink. Linoge. Having enough of the charade for now, just knocks the cell door down and reunites with his cane, which 
um, begins hissing and throwing white light from its eyes. Everything in the room starts flying around as Linoge begins charging up, and for the first time, we see the real Linoge, a wizened old cloak old man with a staff rather than a cane. He instructs Hatch to tell them to give him what he wants and he'll go away. The light goes out and the ancient wizard heads into the snow. Meanwhile, Molly turns all Lady Macbeth here, telling Mike that Andre Linoge should have had an accident so that he'd never see the inside of a courtroom. Mike leaves without acknowledging what she just said and arrives at the jailhouse moments after Linoge escaped. We are then giving establishing shots of the town as it's pounded by the snow, the snow drifts piling up on the street and in through the broken windows of many of the buildings, reminding us how cut off the island is from the rest of the world, trapped within a violent snowstorm with a magical killer whose demands are mysterious and threatening. As everyone settles in and falls asleep, they each have the same dream of a news report after the events of Storm of the Century, where Andre Linoge, under fat makeup, plays a newscaster who lets everyone know that everyone on the island has gone missing and references the very real historical event of Roanoke, whose settlers have disappeared with only the word Croatone carved onto a tree. Now, okay, I'm going like, to talk about this for just a little bit. I always loved this story in social studies class growing up. I just always found it super creepy. So when King wrote this into the narrative, I was hooked. Guys, I was hooked. And I'm just surprised that this is not a story that has been incorporated into fiction more often than it has, and that there hasn't been some you know, big-budget horror movie about what really happened in Roanoke. Um, super creepy. Anyway, we get the uh, the image of the islanders, and it's a great image too, all lined up in the snow, parents holding their children and heading into the sea, apologizing to Mr. Linoge for not giving them what he wanted. Linoge, meanwhile, had cast his spell from the top of the lighthouse, and now that he's free, he's the symbolic lighthouse keeper of the island. The next day, everyone, still rattled by the dream the night before, rushes out to see the lighthouse fall. With the lighthouse representing a beacon of safety, the significance of this is frightening. As the lighthouse starts to fall, people start to disappear in the snow. The residents start to realize that people are missing, and Mike is the only one that understands that they aren't wandering off, but are being abducted by a vengeful Andre Linoge who is using the snow as a cover. It's a great scene. Later, one of the women, one of the women uh, is teaching the students to sing I'm a Little Teapot, which is probably a little inappropriate seeing as how the townsfolk heard both the old woman singing it before her death as well as Katrina in the moments after she murdered Billy. Mike gets some toys for the children and with the alphabet blocks sees that if you move around the letters of Linoge's name, it spells Legion. Mike then tells the story from the Bible, how Jesus exercised a horde of demons by the name of Legion. Now, I'm going to wind up talking more about Legion uh, in the Stephen Kingisms section of this review. Now, back in the shelter, things are not going well. As Ralphie disappears while outside, Mike and company find one of the people that have gone missing while the town had watched Lighthouse Fall. Unsurprisingly, the corpse is adorned with a note explaining, Give me what I want and I'll go away. Molly finds Ralphie in a closet, which explains, uh, sorry, who explains that he was spending time in the closet with the man, uh, which is just such a terrifying thought. And while Molly searches the closet, she finds another note from Linoge. And what's worse, Linoge has left Ralphie with a present which Molly opens, revealing a pouch full of stones. Mike, now angry, tells the story of Job from the Bible, foreshadowing Mike's ultimate role in the story, with him being our Job. They then find, find Angie outside freezing, a released prisoner from Linoge who speaks on his behalf, letting us know that he would that she would tell everyone exactly what... I'm sorry. She lets us know and the townsfolk know that 
Linoge will be telling everyone exactly what it is that he wants later that evening. When Katrina reads to the children, the children in sync interrupt her and begin singing, I'm a little teapot. Angie freaks everyone out by detailing what happened when she was abducted by Linoge, how he flew them into the future, a possible future where Little Tall Island is filled with cops looking for the missing residents of Little Tall. The children become silent and unresponsive to the adults when they try to get through to them. Then the children start speaking to someone that isn't there. Oh, super creepy. They all see the wolf's head cane. One by one, they reach out to what appears to be an invisible object to everyone else. And as they touch the cane, which we can see but nobody else can see, the children pass out and simply collapse on the floor. The immediate thought is that the children are dead, which causes immediate chaos within the shelter. And the fear then spreads through the community like wildfire. Mike manages to get everyone to stop, at least momentarily, but the damage here is done. Linoge has done everything he needs to to make his ultimatum. He's shown just how helpless everyone in town is against his powers. We then see Linoge flying through the sky with the children, a malevolent Pied Piper. While standing outside, watching his machinations come to life, Linoge, with no audience except for us, makes that scary face again. So, everybody, take a drink. Everyone prepares for Linoge's arrival, and when he does show up, he holds up Mrs. Stanhope with magic powers and threatens to burn her face off with a candle. Linoge and Anderson have an argument about the nature of humanity. Linoge explaining that what Mike thinks is good really is just an illusion. And then he says, Born in lust? Turn to dust. Drink. He tells Anderson that he'll be back at 9 o'clock and he'll want to talk to the entire town. The demonstration and the threat strong arms Mrs. Stanhope and one more person is bullied into ultimately accepting his ultimatum. Then at 9 o'clock in town hall Everyone has gathered, and they await the main attraction, who shows up on the dot and makes his way up the aisle towards the ineffective town manager. On his way up, he stops to harass some of the residents and says, Born in vice? Say it twice. Drink. He harasses some more people and then says, Born in sin? Come on in. Drink. As Linoge makes his way towards Robbie, Robbie sees his mother and the fact that he keeps pulling out a, the gun uh, to shoot his mother is hilarious. After Linoge puts Beale into a corner, he stands at the podium and presents his argument. He references Roanoke again, just in case they've forgotten, and outside the windows, he shows them their children as they fly with an astral projection of himself. He lets them know that if he drops them in their dream state, they'll puff out in the real world. Now he's got them on the ropes. He demonstrates his abilities to cow them. He's taken their children. When Ursula stands up and lets him know that they'll do anything he wants, he knows that she speaks on behalf of the entire town. And with this said, Linoge begins to tell them about himself. He's thousands of years old, powerful, but not a god. He says he's not one of the immortals, something he never clarifies, which is nice mythology building. It makes the viewer say, who are the immortals? And longtime listeners to Stephen King, um, sorry, uh, readers of Stephen King, might start to wonder, well, really, in Stephen King works, who are these immortals? Gan? The Guardians of the Beam? You know, the, these questions are, are never fully answered. He explains that he's getting old and that he wants an heir. He wants a child, an apprentice, to train and pass along all of his knowledge. If the town gives him one of the children freely, then he'll go away. Mike completely refuses. The only one in town who wants to stand by his morals, and Linoge tells the townsfolk to stop him. It's clear what kind of uphill battle Mike is fighting here. 
Linoge explains that if the town doesn't give him what he wants, he'll be forced to walk everyone two by two into the ocean, and Little Tall will be remembered as the next Roanoke. He gives them half an hour. When Mike realizes that everyone is going to go along with Linoge, Mike speaks up to try and sway the town's people back to his side. Mike's argument is, if they stand together, then they can push back Linoge. And the sad thing here, what's like really depressing, is that the town's priest does not believe that God will support them. Mike desperately pleads to his town to take the higher road, but the townspeople just shut him down. Worst of all, Molly, his wife, stands against him. It's heartbreaking to watch Tim Daly, the voice of Superman, get beaten by his community both figuratively and literally. And when Molly approaches him, the look of disgust on his face is painful. What happens next is the drawing of the stones, which is simply a rigged game that has pegged Mike as the loser the entire time. The reveal comes that Ralphie is the child that Linoge will take. He then transforms into the wizard and takes Ralphie as his own. Linoge tells Molly and Mike, he'll come to love me. He'll come to call me father. It's awful to watch. And it's clear that Mike was right. He was right. He was the only one in town that that was right. That, you know what? So what? So what? If Linoge then makes us walk two by two into the ocean, you know, dying for standing up to something that truly is evil here is is better than living with the knowledge that as a town you have surrendered a child to this mysterious, malevolent, old monster. And it's his child. Ugh. So yeah, Mike was right, even if it means certain death. Mike runs out into the snow as Linoge flies off into the clear night sky, and he's just screaming to bring him back. Months later, Mike and Molly's relationship is a ruin, and Mike leaves the island after he tells Hatch off, which is good to see. If I was Mike, every time I encountered one of the community residents, I'd just punch him in the face, just as a reminder of their actions, walking down the street, just taking turns, just slugging every single person that was involved in this decision. We then get an update on each of the characters and how they move on, uh, some moving on better than others. Then we have the, the button to the, the ending of our story here, when years later, we encounter Mike one more time on the other side of the country who spots Linoge and Ralphie. And Ralphie, because he is now the son of Andre Linoge and has been trained by Andre Linoge, he turns around and he makes a scary face. Everybody, take a drink. This is an incredibly bleak ending, guys. Not only does the community sell its collective soul, but the one good man who stands by his principles is punished. The end reveals that the entire story has simply been one big cosmic joke on Mike. Linoge came to test him, and him alone, and showed him that he can crumble the world around him and take from him his wife, his child, his community, his faith in people. It's brutal. This is everything that Stephen King does not right on a on a you know yearly basis basically when he publishes a, a new book and longtime listeners of the Stephen King cast will know that I inherently believe that Stephen King is an optimistic writer. He he usually writes that people come together and once they come together they're able to overcome whatever the villainy is. Um, you know, whether it's Randall Flagg, whether it's Pennywise the Dancing Clown, whether it's Tack, you know, whatever it is. Usually people come together. But here, um, he takes your, your typical Stephen King uh, small town and he really shows the worst of humanity here. Um, so it's a small, small story, but really dealing with some big issues here. So let me talk about 
Linoge for just a little bit. Um, this is Stephen King's version of Hannibal Lecter, a calculating, brilliant killer who is just five steps ahead from everybody else, even when he's imprisoned. The thing is, I remember uh, watching this loving Andre Linoge. I thought he was great. I thought he was a great Stephen King villain. Upon rewatch, I I just I did not recall Andre Linoge being so annoying. You know, he all he is is he's this collection of catchphrases. Now, if if King had just toned it down, he'd be perfect. I mean, think about it. this guy is an ancient wizard. He just names drops Atlantis. You know, he has a cool image with both his present look, you know, the pea coat, the hat, the, the, the yellow gloves, the, the, the silver cane, um, and, you know, the, the badass, old-looking, monstrous, wizened wizard figure. Uh, you know, so, I mean, his, his look is cool. Everything about him, you know, he's talking about Roanoke, the fact that he's basically the Pied Piper, which is great. You know, King weaves in uh, elements of fantasy, like I said, with, with the wizard aspect. And he's talking about Atlantis, and he has these these funky stones. He's got his cane. So he's weaving in these, these fantasy elements. He's weaving in our real history. He's weaving in the Pied Piper. He's got all of these things just wrapped up in this, this, this very, what could have been an all-time great character. But... Seriously, um, those of you who aren't just puking from drinking too much right now, I mean, the catchphrases are just too much. It's too much. All he needed was, give me what I want and I'll go away. I mean, that's a great and terrifying line. Give me what I want and I'll go away. Okay, what do you want? And he doesn't answer. It just sticks in your head, right? But uh, come on, like born in lust, turned to dust. Like, what's, what? Like, why? Why say that? What's the point? You know, Bronson, come on in. It's too cheesy. It's, it's just, it's way too cheesy. And the fact that he says it over and over and over, hell is repetition, Robbie. Hell is repetition. Like, it's just, it's, it's obnoxious. It's obnoxious. Like, it's, it's kind of the, the worst traits of, of Stephen King's, like, character ticks, um, and it's just really too bad, because it really takes away from what I still believe is a very strong villain, uh, and, you know, when the novel, or when the, this, this movie came out, I was initially, like I said, I was excited that we had this new Stephen King story coming out, but as it was progressing, I, I was upset that it wasn't a Stephen King book, uh, because I would have loved to have seen the Stephen King descriptions at work um, to see what, what he gives us there. Um, and I think that if Storm of the Century had been told in in a book form, Linoge really, really would have gone down as a as a legendary Stephen King character. And maybe the, the catchphrases would not have been as, as I don't know, over just too much. Anyway, guys, uh, let me talk about the Stephen Kingisms that were present here within the the text. Uh, the first of which I said earlier that I would talk about this, and that's Legion. So King has had his villains refer to themselves as Legion in a couple of his other works. At this point, uh, in the novel It, a voice comes out of the drain, stating that the voice is Legion. In The Stand, Tom Cullen, when hypnotized, states that Flag is the demon known as Legion. And then here, Andre Linoge is an anagram of Legion. Now, I, I've, I don't know if I've gotten to it yet. I have received an email. I don't know at one point I, I've spoken of this email on on air. I don't know if I've done it yet. Um, if I haven't, I will. But, you know, I mean, someone does write in and ask this particular question, but I, I personally do not believe that this is evidence to state that Andre Linoge is Randall Flagg or Pennywise the Dancing Clown or that they're aspects of the same demon. You know, from a... I don't know, thematic standpoint, maybe, yes, Stephen King is, you know, saying that they're all cut from the same evil cloth, all right, but, you know, they, they're they they're their own garments, you know, that 
are sold in different stores and will never be worn by the same person. You know what I mean? But I don't think that they're, aside from a thematic standpoint, they have nothing really in common. So I, I don't think that these characters are connected. I just think that Stephen King really liked that story about Legion and just tends to, to riff on, on the same chord. Uh, and then we have the small town cop battling the devil figure. Uh, Mike's determination to keep his town safe from the wicked Andre Linoge is something that Sheriff Alan Pangborn of Castle Rock would be able to relate to as we saw his, his battle uh, for the soul of his town uh, against the devilish figure Leland Gaunt take place in Stephen King's 1991 91 novel, Needful Things. And then we have the Stephen King catchphrase, as we all know at this point, um, and thematic sound bites. So, hell is repetition. You pay as you go. Pushers get pushed. Born in sin, come on in. Born in lust, turn to dust. God takes care of his own. Give me what I want and I'll go away. You know, it just goes on and on. And usually at this point in the Stephen King cast, I list off the other catchphrases. But nope, not here. I have more than enough from this movie alone to rattle off a pretty lengthy list. Uh, number four is voiceover narration, which we um, have gotten in... Shawshank Redemption, we have gotten it um, in Dolores Claiborne, here we have it, so it's definitely a mechanism that we we have seen from time to time. Uh, number five is wolves and our villains. So Andre Linoge has a wolf's head cane and the image of a wolf connected to our villain of the piece is something that we have seen before with Randall Flagg as presented in The Stand as he sends the wolves to uh, take care of the kid who is also the perpetuator of the Stephen King catchphrase when he just keeps talking about how can you believe that happy crappy and we also have wolves with Flagg and Eyes of the Dragon and we have wolves with uh, tack in desperation as well. Number six is the insecure alpha male uh, presented here as Robbie Beals, the town manager who um, could belong to the, the same club as Big Jim Rennie and Buster Danforth Keaton. We have homophobic attacks uh, one of the little tall residents and his friends beat a gay man so hard that he went blind, which is uh, very similar to the atrocities committed within the pages of It when just a bunch of thugs beat up a gay man and throw him over the kissing bridge. Number eight is Standing Against Evil. Now, this is the dark side of what King has written about time and time again, like I said. I mean, it's just... Uh, here, they aren't working together to overcome evil. Here, they work together to justify their terrible, terrible actions. In the final pages of The Stand, um, it really didn't come down to defeating the villain or beating the villain. It just was simply about standing against the villain, making a stand. And when given the opportunity to stand against this villain as one, the community chooses to give in to the villain's demands. So this is the anti-stand. This is the this is the anti-desperation, which is very similar in nature. It's just standing and saying no. And I don't know. I, I just think that if this community stood up and said, no, Andre Linoge, we're, we're not dealing with you, the, the power of the community as a whole would have been enough to cast out um, Andre Linoge. I think that the power of the white, which we have seen again and again and again in Stephen King works, would have flooded through Mike Anderson, uh, who would be the, the receptacle of the the... The, the energy generated by his community and would have been able to cast out Andre Linoche. That's that's my opinion. 
And then we have uh, Taking Children. Uh, the villain Taking Children is reminiscent of the wolves of the Kala taking the twins in The Dark Tower, Book 5, Wolves of the Kala, whose review will be coming soon. Now we have Easter Eggs, Little Tall Island. Uh, this, of course, is also the setting for Dolores Claiborne. And they even mention the events of Dolores Claiborne and what she did to her husband during the eclipse, which is a nice shout-out to see in an audiovisual format. We never really see that that much in in the Stephen King movies. I mean, I, I think that in Dolores Claiborne, the movie, I think there is actually a reference to Shawshank, which is fun. You don't usually get that. So it's it's great whenever it happens. And then we have a shout-out to Derry, Maine. Uh, Katrina had uh, an abortion in, in Derry. So again, a, a character is referencing a, another one of Stephen King's uh, locations, which is fun. All right, guys. Oh, and then I, I probably should mention um, Robbie Beals, played by Jeffrey DeMunn, who at this point has... He had been in the Shawshank Redemption. He had been in the Green Mile. He's now in uh, Storm of the Century. He will later be in The Mist. So he is a an actor that often frequents Stephen King's works. Okay, guys. So like I said, this was enjoyable, but... Unfortunately, we are we are hindered by a depiction of a villain that overreaches. He just tries a little bit too hard, and you can't take him as seriously as you want to. With that said, Confior is great in this role. His voice is amazing. His deadpan look is great. His little smirk is fantastic. When he's playing that um, news reporter on the on the on the television screen you can tell he's having so much fun i think at one point he's also playing like a televangelist again you can tell that the actor is having fun playing these different characters and he through his enthusiasm you're getting a different different look at andre lanoge who you can tell is like even though he's old and and he's being serious all the time he's really just he's that impish Stephen King devil character that we've seen in Leland Gaunt and Randall Flagg and and others. So Calm Fior is great, and I do love the character of Andre Linoge. I wish that the catchphrases had maybe been whittled down from 25 to maybe 3. But other than that, he is a memorable Stephen King character, and his complete takedown of this town is haunting. And it's just, it's it's a good it's a good movie. I really, really enjoyed it. I was kind of worried about heading into it because I haven't seen it in years. I had good memories of it. And it's been my experience during the, the King cast to be seeing or just to be experiencing disappointment when revisiting certain things. And it's why I really stayed away from the uh, Stephen Weber starring adaptation of The Shining. It's why I haven't gone near the Tommyknockers and others. So, so I really enjoyed it. I, I think it's a good-looking movie. This is coming out in 1999. It's starting to shake off that kind of cheesy 90s television look that unfortunately had saddled earlier Stephen King TV miniseries really that had been present during the 1994 The Stand TV miniseries that just it didn't look good guys I, I it's not a good looking movie this is this is the the cinematographer I think did a very very good job at capturing the, the cold raw winter of a New England island and it's just it's it's good looking uh, it has a good cast, I think. The, sometimes the, the the main accents, it just gets it's too much at times. But other than that, we spend the right amount of times with the characters. At no point do I ever feel as though it's really dragging. The the set pieces are varied enough to 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 make it interesting. It it builds very well. It has good momentum. Uh, and at no point do you ever really know exactly what he wants so that when he does say that he wants the children or he wants a child, it, it's, it's very haunting. And you can tell that there, you know, we can tell because we've read Stephen King and we've watched Stephen King and we know Stephen King works that it's, it's definitely more than that. It's, it's a test. And unfortunately, our main character does not pass that test. 
or actually no he does pass it's it's everyone else that fails and and he uh he is forced to bear the brunt of everyone's weak decision brutal 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 okay guys um so next week i believe i am reviewing the girl who loved tom gordon which was Stephen King's, it's just a fun little book. Well, it's not fun. It's actually pretty harrowing. But it, uh, it was just a, a small novel that he released all about uh, a young girl lost alone in the, the, the woods of, of New England. And it's, it's, it's a good reading experience, and I'm looking forward to, to getting back to it and reviewing it next week. So in the meantime, everyone, like I said earlier, if you want to head on over to iTunes and leave me a review, I will greatly appreciate that as long as I live. So head on over and do that, and always feel free to write in at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. There are some of you out there, I your, your emails are sitting in my inbox box right now i have not had time to sit down and give you the responses that that you deserve to um to hear from because your emails have been great uh there's one in particular that i there's a couple in particular that um really are great so lee um i know that you just emailed me again um, with the, the email that you sent earlier in August. I will be getting back to you. It was a great email. By the way, it was a great email. So don't think that I'm not paying attention to you. I will definitely get back to you. Okay, uh, everyone, just thank you. Thank you so much for, for listening to the Stephen King cast. You, you make me keep on doing this. So everyone, I will see you here next week to review The Girl Who Loved Tom Gordon. And in the meantime... May we have long days and pleasant nights, and I will see you here next week where M-O-O-N spells Stephen King cast. That wind's howling, and it seems mighty like a woman screams, and we best be moving faster if we can. Damn, just think about that barn with that haze so soft and warm For it's only three more months to marry It's only three more months to marry Then get up, you honorary cuss Or you'll be the death of us I'm so weary